Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us today right here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're soon going to mark the birthday of two of our most distinguished presidents. We live and breathe as Americans, but our souls are deeply Jewish. We go to work after shul, break for mincha, walk through the halls making brachot as we pass by our colleagues, whatever their religion may be, and we are forced to answer questions and face tough challenges. As Orthodox Jews, how do we do it? Who advocates for us? What is the world saying about us, and how do we respond? This hour, we are talking to the champion of Orthodox Judaism, Miss Allison Josephs, otherwise known as Jew in the City. Allison has been involved in the field of Jewish outreach for over a dozen years, teaching and lecturing, working at Partners in Torah, Sinai Retreats, and NCSY, and is a spiritual mentor to actress Mayim Bialik. She was named one of NJOP's top 10 Jewish influencers in 2012 and has been quoted or written about in many, many publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Beast, Huffington Post, and Yahoo News. And now she joins us right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Allison, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So the first question is something that I'm sure people ask you all the time. Who is Allison Josephs and what is Jew in the City? Who is Allison Josephs? Um, okay, well, I guess we can start at the very beginning. I grew up in New Jersey, um, raised as a proud conservative Jew, and um, I we went to Manhattan probably once a month on you know family outings, and I would see the Orthodox kind of from across the street or from afar always, and you know my father would come home with horrible stories about them. He was a doctor in a hospital in Manhattan when he was training to be a, a doctor and as a resident, and from my youngest memories at four years old, he would say they're dirty, they're smelly, they're ignorant, they can't speak English. These were the associations that I had starting at a very young age. Proud to be a Jew, but, you know, the Orthodox were way too extreme. And I was continuing my sort of happy, secular American life, not a problem, until the day that I realized I didn't know why I was alive. Um, it first started with some how questions. Old, how old were you? I was eight. Um, it first started with some questions about infinity. My father had started talking to me about how numbers don't end and how the universe doesn't end, and that was just sort of some troublesome concepts that I was trying to wrap my eight-year-old brain around that I couldn't, and I was losing sleep over it. But things really got bad when I walked into my fourth-grade classroom in December. It was actually almost 24 years ago. This December was 24 years ago. Um, my classmates were crying, and I found out that uh, a classmate in the grade above me had been murdered by her father. Whoa. So he had been suffering from severe depression, um, and he killed both of his children and himself. And Whoa. this is actually, it was really within days of the Sandy Hook shootings. And my happy, you know, childhood, perfect childhood, safe childhood was suddenly shattered. And I realized that my parents couldn't protect me and that there were no guarantees in life. And sort of all the plans and dreams that I had for the future weren't necessarily going to happen. And I was sort of petrified about what would happen after I would die. Um, and then I came up with an even bigger problem because it was a problem that needed to be dealt with right now. And that question was, what do I do in the meantime? What do I need to get to before I meet that end? And I assumed my parents knew because, A, I was eight and I thought they knew everything then. And, B, I thought that my parents would have a plan for what I was meant to do here if they bothered bringing me into existence. 
And, you know, you kind of hope your parents have a plan for you like that. And when I approached them casually one day, probably over brunch, and asked them why we're here, they just were they were speechless. They, they you know, blank stares. Um, and it was very disappointing that, you know, the people that I was relying on for guidance, and they guided me in every other way, how to be a good person, how to do well in school, how to have a good marriage, a good home, a good career. Everything else there was a plan for. There was no plan for spirituality. It just wasn't talked about. So um, I continued my life. As long as I was distracted, life was great. Did well in school, had my friends, a million extracurricular activities. Kept sort of going towards that plan, but whenever my mind would go back to the fact that it was not adding up to anything, that it was not, you know, getting to anything more than the here and the now, um, I would have minor panic attacks. I would have trouble sleeping. And I just couldn't distract myself like the rest of the world. Like, I think everybody kind of knows this stuff in the back of their mind that this world isn't going to continue. But for some reason, I couldn't keep myself distracted like everyone else. And um, to make a long story short, um, I was in a Hebrew high school in high school um, taught by some Orthodox teachers. My parents didn't send us for religious reasons. They sent us to meet nice Jewish boys. Unfortunately, they were all a bunch of nerds. But um, anyway, so they sent us there, and I met a modern Orthodox teacher. And um, he started showing me the beauty and the depth of my heritage, and I didn't know that it existed. I thought that being Jewish was about, you know, the gefilte fish and the matzo balls and the jokes, and then my mom would try to, you know, instill pride based on how many Nobel laureates and how many doctors and lawyers, and she, she really tried to instill a pride in us, but there was no, she didn't know that we had depth. She didn't, none of us knew that, you know, that Torah is asking questions about why we're here and had, you know, meaningful answers, and so... I remember leaving these classes just like I was walking on air. Like I remember, like I felt like my soul was like on fire. And what I, was sort of like the first thing that that flipped on the switch? Um, it was a class on Perke Avos. It was a class on um, the Tao Te Ching and Perke Avos. And I came to the class for the Chinese book, um, and I ended up staying for the rabbis. And you know, the interesting thing is that Jews are willing to find uh, meaning and you know purpose and inspiration pretty much everywhere but their own backyard. You know, well. Peace Corps and hippies and Buddhism and, you know, pretty much any cause and anything except our own. Um, I like to call it the green, ha- green eggs and ham syndrome that, you know, we, we, you know, try it. Maybe you like it and we're, we're just, we're not willing to try what is ours. But I, I tried it accidentally because I was trying to get Taoism and I got Judaism instead. And, um, Anyway, this teacher was really the, the guy that got me started. I spent my first Shabbos there. Um, I had really a life-changing experience a few months later in Hawaii. We went on a family trip, and um, the teacher at that point had spoken about not only believing in God but trusting in God, and I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't really get that. I didn't believe in God at that point, and um, I said, maybe I'm going to understand one day. I'm going to keep an open mind because I didn't know how can you trust something that you can't see, you can't feel, you can't hear. Like, I trust my family and friends, but they, they earned that trust. Like, you know, we have a relationship, so even if God did exist, how would I learn to trust that thing that, you know, is just the air? And we stayed in Hawaii on our trip on, on the seashore for a week, and it was the longest I'd ever stayed on a beach before. And my father told me to listen to the waves, and I heard them before I went to sleep at night. And the next morning when I woke up, and later that day when I was swimming at the pool, and I realized that the waves hadn't stopped, that I'd gone to sleep and taken a break, and the waves just kept crashing and crashing and crashing. And 100 years before I was born and 100 years after, I'd be dead and gone and decompose. Those waves would just keep on crashing and crashing and crashing. And I ran to my father, like astonished at my discovery. I said, you're not going to believe what I discovered, Dad. He said, what? What is it? I said, waves don't stop. He said, 
get a life. Like, of course, waves don't stop, Allison. Like, yeah, duh. So I said, no, think about how amazing this is. And so we started doing calculations. And by we, I mean he, because he likes math more than I do. And we calculated that in a million years, and science dates the world at 5 billion years, and I believe you can work out Torah in science. You can see the video we made on that. But in just a million years, the waves crash in that same spot 10 to 12 trillion times. And, of course, not just there, but every other shore around the world. And when I started thinking about these mind-boggling numbers, I said, maybe I'm missing everything else. Like, maybe there's so much more that I need to open up my eyes and, and take in. And the rest of the week we were there, I tried to take in sunsets and flowers and trees. And the last day of our trip, something, like, life-changing happened to me. We were in this tropical rainforest called the Rotahana. It was where Jurassic Park was filmed. And we were driving around and got out at one point and went on a hike. And we came across these bamboo shoots, and they had these green and gold vertical striped lines, perfectly straight stripes. And I came right up to the shoots, and I said, did someone paint these on here? And my family came over, and everyone started fighting because we're Jewish. And half of us were saying natural, and half of us were saying painted. And my father came over, and he took a look, and he said, it's definitely painted. They're too straight and flawless to be natural. And I looked at the top, and I saw the lines went all the way up this 50-foot shoot. And I was just gazing it in complete amazement, and I muttered to myself, wow, God has quite a paintbrush, which was a bizarre thing to happen because I didn't know where the words came from. Like, I've had numerous times, unfortunately, that I put my foot in my mouth because I was thinking something, and then I blurted it out, but I didn't believe in God, and I didn't believe that God had a paintbrush. I never spoke about God in such terms, but suddenly, as I was just in this awe-inspired moment, these words came out of my mouth, and I sort of shook off the weirdness and took a few more steps, and my mom said, no, Allison, look at this tree. And then I saw the most incredible tree I've ever seen in my life. A smooth bark, a lavender background, and pink and green and blue swirled lines all over it. Like it was a painting, like there was an artist painting the trees. And I said to my mother, there's some weird artist painting the trees. There's some artistic statement that he's making. And she said, no, Allison, look to the top. And I looked all the way up, and the color went all the way up. And for a brief moment, it was as if I understood the entire universe. And... It's hard to put into words what exactly I experienced then because words don't really do such an experience justice. But the best way that I can tell people what happened then was that I got just a level deeper. I just sort of perceived reality one level deeper than what we normally perceive reality as. And I detected unity. And I detected interconnectedness. And I suddenly felt everything had its time and its place. And that question that I had from that teacher, how can I trust it was so obvious in that moment. The stuff that didn't make sense, the stuff I didn't understand, in that moment I felt that everything in my life and everyone's life and everything that happens has its time and its place. And the trust comes from the fact that we are where we need to be and doing what we need to do as we need it. And I was scared to leave Hawaii because... Yeah, not many people would think <laughs> that you could find such a deep connection to God in Hawaii. Someone... But that's sort of the amazing thing about it, that you could find God in you know, that you found it in a rainforest. You can find it everywhere. So someone actually told me recently, where was this? I don't even remember. I hear from so many people. He said that Hawaii is the farthest point away from Israel, like the, the complete furthest point on the opposite end of the earth, if you check it out. And he said, he was trying to say that it's at least spiritual place. And I said, if it's so far away, I think it shows that you can find God everywhere. That was yeah. my lesson. Right. The truth is that I was scared to leave Hawaii and go back to New Jersey because I figured, like, there's no way on earth I'm going to be able to find this um, connection in New Jersey. I was going to say one more thing about the Hawaii, the unity moment. I learned in Israel a couple of years later a piece of Torah that sort of proved what I experienced there was a Torah truth. And it was connected to the Shema. 
and my whole life, even as not a particularly educated Jew or particularly observant Jew, I knew the Shema from the time I was a little girl. But I misunderstood the Shema my whole life. When I said, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, I took that to be a literal number one. As in like the idolaters had ten of them, and we had nine less. We only had one. And kind of like we're missing some, they have more than us. And what the teacher said is that Echad is connected to Achdut. Echad is connected to unity. And when we say Hashem Echad, we say Hashem united. Hashem, the unity of all things. And as this teacher was teaching this lesson, I was like brought back to that moment in that rainforest. And he was saying the words and I said, I know this already. I, I know this truth because this is what I experienced there. So I was scared to leave Hawaii, but thank God I was able to see God in New Jersey. Um, it took maybe a couple months later, but there was a big snowstorm. In the blizzard of 96, that was before people named snowstorms like, you know, uh, Euclid and Nemo and all the right. other crazy things that they named snowstorms now. But um, I remember New York City was shut down for two days straight. Yeah. And I remember thinking there's nothing that could shut New York down. The city never sleeps, shut down New York City. That was pre-9-11. So unfortunately, we've seen New York City get shut down. But the difference is that with this snowstorm, blizzard 96, New York City, a couple of days later, was up and running again because the weather changed. It started raining. It got a little bit warmer. And the pile of snow on my lawn that was three feet high was two inches high. So while, unfortunately, human beings were able to break New York City, no one could put it back together two days later. And when I saw that, I said, okay, there's God in New Jersey as well, not just in Hawaii. And since I discovered... The beauty of our heritage, I have been on a mission ever since then to try to spread it to to the rest of the Jewish people. And so I started first with my family, and I was annoying the heck out of them. And they thought it was a fad, and they thought, you know, this is just her teenage rebellion. Did you feel that going to orthodoxy was sort of the manifestation of your discovery? It's a good question. So it's like this. I didn't actually want to become Orthodox. Um, a, I didn't actually first know you could change teams. And B, um, I didn't want to become You're one of them. Funny. Right, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I can't help it. It's just what comes out. Um, so um, I didn't want to become Orthodox because, like, those were the bad guys. Like, those are the people that we saw in the streets, the extremists with the beards and the wigs and, you know, and the people that defrauded the government and threw rocks at other Jews, right? So I, I couldn't become one of those, like, and uh, the, they subjugated their women. And yet, as I tried to take my observance more seriously within the conservative movement, I was organizing Shabbat dinners with my friends and trying to, you know, and I saw there was only so far they're willing to take it. I was going in USY conventions. I was, try, I was trying to be the firmest conservative Jewish girl I could be. And I saw a point, a breaking point that people didn't want to take it as far as I did. And I was alone. And so begrudgingly, I started, you know, exploring orthodoxy more. And it was um, met with a lot of uh, negativity by my family and my friends. They all thought that I had lost my mind, that I had gone off the deep end. And I was making my changes so slowly, but it was such a scary thing. Like, you know, I think a lot of times Jewish parents would rather their kids intermarry than, you know, become an orthodox Jew. And although I was facing, you know, so much dissent when I made that transition, when I finally got through it, I somehow forgot about the way people felt. I mean, meaning like I saw the misconceptions when I was at Partners in Torah, I spoke to about 3,000 birthright alumni. I was unknowingly doing research, and I was hearing the same things from them over and over again. Like a girl would tell me, well, I would become more religious, but if I ever became orthodox, I couldn't work, and working is very important to me. I said, oh, really? Which commandment says thou shalt not work if you're a woman? And I would hear from birthrighters who would tell me things like, oh, well, the orthodox threw a garbage on you when you go through Mayasharim. 
I said, okay, well, that's not really how they're supposed right. to be. And, and, you know, the normal ones of us um, find that behavior to be uh, repulsive. And what I realized, Jew in the City came to a head. This is how we go from Allison Joseph to Jew in the City. I was interviewed by a Spanish journalist about seven years ago. She was in from Spain, and she was in Brooklyn, and she noted noticed that she hadn't really seen so many Jews around Spain. Well, lady, when you kick us out of your country 500 years ago, that's kind of what you get. But she was noticing a lot of us around Brooklyn, and she wanted to do an interview with an Orthodox Jewish woman, and she posted this request on Craigslist. And a man that I knew in the Kiruv world, in the outreach world, emailed me and said, quick, get to her before some crazy person does. So I emailed her, and she came over the next day. And our apartment walls in that apartment were painted like mustard yellow, and our furniture was funky. And from the moment she walked into our home, I could tell everything that she was expecting to be was nothing like what she was expecting. And she saw that I had an Ivy League education, and that I wasn't subjugated, and I had opinions, and I believed in science, and everything that she thought was going to be was completely different. And after a three-hour interview, when she left... My voice was kind of sore and hoarse now. Um, for three hours of, of mostly me speaking, I said to my husband, we are doing the worst job of PR. The world completely, we, as a we as a community, the world completely misunderstands us. And my goal, really, from the moment that I discovered the beauty of our heritage, that this is the meaning of, of my life, and I believe it would be a fulfilling you know, answer and meaning to so many other Jewish people, but I was trying to spread this information. If the people that are the guardians of the, you know, traditional ways of the Torah-observant life, if they are so hated and misunderstood by the world, how are people ever going to give it a chance? What's getting in the way of most Jews having an authentic Jewish experience, observant Jewish experience, are these people. They read about Nehemi Weberman in the newspaper and the people that protected him. They read about modesty patrols in, you know, Brooklyn. They read about, you know, people in Israel spitting at little girls. They read about people defrauding the government and different scams they're running. And there's no understanding that for the majority of us, these people are disgusting and these people, you know, don't represent Torah values. And because most people have never met, personally met an Orthodox Jew, most people have never had the chance to have these misconceptions disproven. Like when they, So you yeah. think that most people, the way you're saying most people, this might just be a sort of a devil's advocate point yeah. here. Um wouldn't be like smart enough to see past, you know, those egregious stories that you would hear about in the news and realize that there must be people who are more moderate. So here's the thing. When the Catholic Church had their molestation scandal, there's enough Catholics in the world that most people probably know a Catholic personally, their neighbor, a coworker, and they could say, I know a nice normal Catholic who doesn't support child molestation. What happened there amongst these priests? That's an isolated case. Because we, there are not so many Orthodox Jews and because we live in a select number of cities in the world and we generally stay amongst ourselves, because the more moderate ones are wearing shaitals at work that are blending and not necessarily outing themselves as Orthodox, because maybe some of the more moderate men are not wearing yarmulkes at work and outing themselves as Orthodox, because to most people, Orthodox means that most extreme thing. And this isn't to equate the more right-wing necessarily bad. There are right-wing people, ultra-ultra, that are wonderful and you know righteous and amazing people but more like the people that generally stick out and cause these, you know, Chil Hashem stories, unfortunately, are the people that usually look more ultra. It doesn't make sense. You wouldn't think it could be true. And yet, I'll, I can give you many examples of how people make such generalizations. One of the conservative families 
that I was hanging out with a lot when I was trying to be the firmest conservative I could be. When they saw that I was kind of considering making the switch over to orthodoxy, they said to me, don't do it. They throw rocks at Jews. They, for them, if I would make the crossover to orthodoxy, I am part of those people that throw rocks at Jews. I'll give you another example. A woman in our old apartment building, my joke about this woman, she lives on the floor below us, she must have been hard of hearing because the noise that my kids made above her floor, I don't know how she was so nice to us unless she had some hard of hearing issue. Anyway, she saw me in the elevator one day. A 60-year-old secular Jewish woman, she had been living in the neighborhood for years amongst the modern Orthodox community there. This was a modern Orthodox community. There was no mistaking anyone for being anything but modern Orthodox. She said to me, I'm going to make hats for the women of your community. What do you guys wear? I said, we wear cute ones. She said, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. Open a magazine. Whatever's in style, that's what we're wearing. And she said, okay, so like pillbox hats? I said, mm. pillbox hats? You think I'm Hasidic, don't right. you? Right. I was in the Museum of Natural History with one of my high school friends, a good friend who I had known since I was 14. She saw me through my transition, a little freaked out by it, but she stuck with me nonetheless. And we're passing by the dinosaur bones. She's a biology teacher. And she said, but you don't believe in this stuff, right? I said, oh, yeah, I do. Yep, there's a whole bunch of us that do. There is not an understanding of the nuances. Meaning, like, do we get the difference between the Amish people? I'm saying, do we know, like, which Amish group does this? And wait, we just see beards and, you know. So it's interesting. I have, have After having grown up in a insulated modern Orthodox community, the only people I ever socialized with were other Orthodox kids, other Orthodox families. I literally don't think I ever had a friend who was not like me, religiously speaking, um, you know, until I got a little bit older. But my first interaction where I had to sort of face this question of like, what what is Orthodox Judaism? What am I? Was my first job out of college. And I worked at a TV station and... I used to take my lunch into the common room and I would double wrap it and put it in the microwave, you know, like every, everybody else. And I would sit and I would sort of like wash Natilis Yadayim over there and then make sure that I didn't talk to anybody until I got down to eat my sandwich or whatever. And um, one of the tech guys was asking me about kosher. And he said something like, oh, is what you're eating kosher? And I said, of course, you know, I only eat kosher. And he said, well... Is it blessed by a rabbi? And I, and I was trying to figure out like where that misconception came from. And, you know, it became a sort of a whole conversation between a room full of people, some who were Jewish and some who were not, who were talking about kosher food being food blessed by a rabbi. And I was thinking, okay, a misconception about a mashgiach, like I, and then to start explaining it. And, you know, I think that that was, you know, when you say like a turning point, that was a point for me where I said, I need to, re-educate myself in how to explain the things that I've been taught my whole life. To we have a video people. on that one. We have a video on the, the not blessed by a rabbi. So you can check that one out. <laughs> totally. I will. No, they're the same ones that come up again and again and again. Yeah. I'll tell you, give you another example of not getting, of just not getting our community. I was interviewed by the daily beast a few months ago. The reporter was a secular Jewish woman. She was doing a story on the New York senatorial candidate, Mindy Mayer. And she sent me an email. I'd love to get a statement from you about what part of Jewish law keeps women from working. I'm thinking, great. Jelly Beast wants to quote me. Called her up. I said, hi, I'm ready to go. She said, okay, what law? I said, none. She said, what do you mean? I said, Orthodox women work all over the place. So I said, pretty much what you see in the secular world, the number of percentage of working is what you're going to see in our community too. 
She said, no, it's not true. I said, it is true. She said, well, what do they do? They run shops. I said, well, some run shops and some run businesses and some run classrooms and some run, you know, medical practices. And, and at a certain point she said, oh, I guess my secular bias is getting in the way here. And these are the people that are in control of, of the news. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, at our uh, premiere party, one of the reporters from a major newspaper was there and he heard our DJ, a uh, modern Orthodox guy, was playing um, a Hanukkah version of Gangnam Style in Hebrew. And he like took note for a moment, and he was so confused. I said, oh, you were expecting klezmer, weren't you? And he kind of, yeah, that, that's what we thought. We thought they drank Manischewitz wine, that they listened to klezmer music all day. And I'll tell you, like, um, Oprah Winfrey recently did, uh, a, you know, a sort of a big interview of uh, people on Crown Heights. And for the most part, it was a positive uh, piece that she did. She somehow found the most, like, insular Crown Height family, like, that, that ever existed because the Lubavitchers that I know in Crown Heights are very with it and in the world and savvy. The kids in the family she interviewed had never heard of Mickey Mouse before. Wow. And one of the clips that they did, one of the B-rolls that they did before they started their segment was showing the family dancing the whore in the living room because that's what all of us Orthodox Jews are doing. It's a Tuesday afternoon and we're just dancing the whore. And so, like, the fact that she sort of showed it that way when you could you never see the people there's never um spotlight in the media of people that look normal and sound normal and again this isn't to put down jews that have more of a traditional look or you know sort of have more of an ultra orthodox look that that's an opinion that's that's a possibility but it doesn't work for everybody like for me for instance i have this very deep side but i also have a very shallow side and as i was thinking about where i could fit into this as i want to become more observant a big question in my mind was will i be able to look cute Will I be able to be an Orthodox Jewish woman and dress modestly and be cute still? And that was a real concern. And I think, you know, if men only see the large beards and the black hats as a possibility and they think, hey, I'm a professional guy going to my office in Midtown, I couldn't do that because I can't be that guy. If they understood that they could be completely committed to observance and still wear their suits to work and, you know, wear a yarmulke, maybe not have it on the office depending on who you ask, there's just not that understanding that there are the nuances within the community. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to be back with more of Allison Josephs and Jew in the City in just a moment. Legendary violinist Itzhak Perlman will bring his soulful sound to Brooklyn with a major performance at the Cushman and Wakefield Theater at Barclays Center on Thursday, February 28th at 7.30 p.m. Perlman will be joined on stage by Brooklyn-based cantor Yitzhak Mayer Helfgott a world-renowned tenor who has led the revival of Jewish liturgical music. Proceeds in the concert will benefit the Met Council on Jewish Poverty and the Perlman Music Program. Purchase tickets at BarclaysCenter.com or by calling 1-800-745-3000. Separate seating options and group tickets are also available by calling 855-GROUP-BK. The evening will feature celebrated violinist Yitzhak Perlman and Chief Cantor of Parkey Synagogue, Cantor Yitzhak Mayer Helfgott performing music from their fall 2012 Sony release, Eternal Echoes, Songs and Dances of the Soul. Purchase your tickets, BarclaysCenter.com, or call 1-800-745-3000 for the February 28th event. Separate seating options and group tickets, call 855-GROUP-BK.
Amen. 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 Amen.
welcome back to Something to Talk About right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're sitting with Allison Josephs of Jew in the City. Allison Josephs has been talking to us about her background and how she came to be doing what she is doing. And um, we've been having an amazing conversation about Orthodox Judaism and what it means in the world. And I guess I have to ask you, Allison, I know I, I know we care, but if we were to look deeply, why should we care what the outside world thinks? Well, so there's two, two levels that it plays on. Um, for me, my first priority for caring about the image is outreach purposes. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, um, if everybody assumes that we're all the extremists, we're all the bad guys, we're all the bad apples, if they don't understand that these are, unfortunately, the worst in the community or um, there's more than one opinion or there's nuances, if people don't understand these details, then um, they're likely to never give it a chance. And what I've come to see or realize in the years of outreach that I've done is that it's not about changing someone's mind or sort of, you know, forcing them or arguing them. It's about exposing them. I feel like the Torah sells itself. Unfortunately, I feel like sometimes in outreach, some people in outreach, um, you know, it's really sometimes even like bait and switch, and it can't be that way. The Torah, the Torah sells itself. It's it's a strong enough. Our our product is great. We have to just get people to the product. That's so that's what we have to do. We have to just give them a an unfettered experience to experience Shabbos as Shabbos is meant to be experienced, to experience Torah learning as Torah learning can be, and just sort of let them see, you know, what what is possible, what is available without all the, you know, sort of baggage and, you know, details sort of messing it up. And if, if that stuff can be removed, that would be my goal for every Jew, just to get to experience, you know, a couple of these basic things and, and know what's out there, know why know why their ancestors were willing to die for this. That's the thing that I, it's one of my, you know, sort of gets you in, in the heart. But for every Jew that doesn't care, that's apathetic, I know that they have an ancestor somewhere far back that was willing to give up his or her life to keep this going. And and so I, my feeling is that, like, you owe it to them. You owe it to them to, you know, to understand what they fought for and what they were willing to give up. And so to remove those stereotypes and those misunderstandings. So that's essential because every Jew, every Jew get, deserves to know what his heritage is. You know, like birthright Israel is saying that every Jew should have the chance to know his birthright of the land. And I feel like every Jew should have a chance to know his birthright of, you know, his heritage of, of his, his lifestyle. Um, so that's my main focus. Um, the secondary thing for just Orthodox Jews that aren't so interested in outreach per se is that you're being misunderstood you're, you are being clumped together with the worst of the worst. Um, occasionally positive news articles are being done. An interesting thing that I've noted, and I'm not claiming a conspiracy theory here, but I will tell you something that I've noticed. Whenever there's a negative story in the news, whenever an Orthodox Jew has something, done something negative, it's always Orthodox, usually ultra-Orthodox. It's just pointed out left and right, Orthodox, Orthodox. When they do something positive, um, Many times they say things instead like keep a clad or Jewish Jordan. Tamir, Tamir Goodman wasn't the Orthodox Jewish Jordan. He was the Jewish Jordan, the Maccabees. The Mac- Everybody loves the Maccabees. They're just a lovable group. They were in our recent video. If you look at most of their interviews, a Jewish a cappella group from Yeshiva University. If you don't know what Yeshiva University is, these are just a bunch of cute guys wearing yarmulkes. And when they were in our, our All-Stars video, our most recent video, I said to them, will you say explicitly that we are orthodox? And at first they were kind of hemming and hawing. Could we should? And I said, it's like this. It's never associated with anything positive. Idan, 
I was going to ask kid. you about him. So he donned, yeah. the way that he donned was, was written up. The articles, so they called yeah, What did you think about the comments that were made by Howie Mandel, the judge, when he donned Sang? Howie you know, Mandel was clearly making a connection with his own Jewish roots his, by talking his, with his, Don yeah, on stage. His, his, Howie Mandel's, you know, Pindaliad was shining through. He he was proud. He was, even if he's not an observant Jew himself, there was, seeing Idan up there with his yarmulke on, was, it was bringing something out. And I think the most interesting thing about being a Jew is that you can be so far away and so not practicing and so not involved, and yet, like, they can still, something can sort of pull pull out and make you feel uh, proud like that. So, so many of the articles written about Idan they called him Kippah clad. And in one ridiculous article, they mentioned his sister, who was on her way to Israel to go to seminary for the year. And instead, they said her sis- his sister is headed to the Mideast, mm-hmm. they wouldn't say Israel, to go to a gap year study program with other teens. It, they, they totally like removed the you know the Jewish the religiousness the orthodoxy out of it um, because Idan was a likable character, you know. And I don't know somehow. And again, I can't claim a conspiracy theory. Whenever I post things like this on Facebook, people say, so you think that they have, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that the association people have with orthodoxy is negative. So when they see negative, it's orthodox. And when they see positive, it's just like, oh, this guy's kind of Jewy. And, you know, they don't make that association. But uh, we need to state it explicitly. We need to state explicitly that there's people that are, are moderate. They People don't understand that orthodox can be moderate. Do you think there are people out there who might, disagree with your platform because they're afraid to be too public about Jews in Orthodox Judaism, uh, you know, akin to let's not be so, let's not be so public because of, let's say they have Holocaust survivor parents or, you know, they, they have a Holocaust mentality that maybe they just feel like we shouldn't be so public about it. I can't, I've never had that exact argument or um, you know, comment or negativity. I've had every other, you know, um, you know, problem people could come up with. Never that specific one has been uh, vocalized. I'll tell you, I think actually addressing some of these issues head on actually does better for us in terms of non-Jews' understanding of us. There are so many Jews, sorry, so many non-Jews who are following Jew in the city, which I find so fascinating. I heard from a woman in Kuwait who said, we're not so different. And I had re- recommended... Um, that people in a radio interview, I did a different one, people watch Ushbizen. I said, if you want to get uh, an insight into what Hasidic life in Israel looks like, this was a movie written by and produced by and acted by ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews. And the woman's part, apparently, the the female um, protagonist was the wife of the actor in real life. And when she saw the part that was written for her, she told them, this woman doesn't have enough chutzpah, you got to give her some more, you know, uh, sort of more spunk and and that was my example of you know don't assume that the Hasidic women are so quiet and subjugated either you know this is a it's not my world but you know this was a story that I'd heard to say that you know there are a lot of them that are, have strong voices and this woman in Kuwait watched Ushbizen with her family and she noticed the different the similarities of Hebrew and Arabic and the women covering their hair like her relatives do and it was this beautiful message that, like, our people are more similar. Why do we fight? I don't believe the horrible things that they've said about us. I had another guy who I connected with on YouTube. I thought his screen name was something about, like, Jews, Yehudi, and I thought he was Jewish. And then actually turned out that it was, like, a shortened version of Jews should die. And somehow I was in dialogue with him at this point. And I said to him, like, why do you hate Orthodox Jews so much? And he said he was in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. I believe in Rockland County is where he said it was. 
and an Orthodox Jew drove him off the street, drove him off the road, and he got into a horrible car accident with his friend, and his friend was in his arms and, you know, horribly injured, and this guy just drove off. And I said, I am so sorry for what this guy did, but you have to know that this is not how Orthodox Jews, how Torah-observant Jews are meant to behave. We are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. I said, I can't take back what this guy did, but let me, you know, if I can't apologize on behalf of our community, this is a horrible thing. This never happened. And he said, thank you so much. You've changed my perspective. And so... I'm not saying that all anti-Semites can be, um, you know, just uh, talked to and reasoned with because, I mean, unfortunately, the majority of them cannot. But um, it did teach me that, you know, there is something to talk about that sometimes for the people that, you know, get mistreated or, you know, have bad interactions. Look, my father, the people, the chassidim that he dealt with as a doctor, they wouldn't have operations done unless they asked their rebbe if it was okay. So my father sort of generalized and thought this is this is Jewish law. This is halacha. He didn't understand that this was a community within the Orthodox world. It's if we put it out there, people understand the nuances. You speak openly about some sensitive topics, male, female relations, relationships, modesty. Do you get negative feedback when you choose to delve into a topic that some people might not feel is appropriate to discuss publicly? It was interesting. What I found is that you will always get negative feedback no matter what you say. Like I was doing an experiment on Facebook the other day and I just like put the word love there and I said, can we all just agree on love? Can everyone just like the word love? And someone then someone had to disagree. Well, actually not to disagree, but I don't think you're getting so many disagreements. So I was like, are you joking me? Whatever. Um, so I've heard actually from a bunch of rabbis, even like more yeshivish, ultra-Orthodox rabbis who told me that they were so impressed with how sensitively and appropriately and modestly I dealt with sensitive topics. I've also, you know, read comments around the internet. I shouldn't be doing that, but I do sometimes, you know, I can't believe that she's talking about these topics. And the truth is that these topics need to be talked about. People need to understand what is and what isn't. We can't be represented by these misunderstandings and by these stereotypes. And is it ideal to put these subjects out there in such a public way? Maybe it's not the highest level of idealness. Maybe in a perfect world you could discuss them in closed rooms, and but it's, that's not the world we live in. And what's happening is that we have, since the Holocaust, lost 6 million people. In the Holocaust, how many millions of Jews have we lost to ignorance and apathy? And I, my sense is that well, you know, we need to be fighting for them. And so the conditions are not ideal right now, and we need to do whatever we can has to obviously be within Torah standards and within halacha. You can't just do anything and, and justifying the means. It can't be like that. But things can be less ideal when, when you're fighting for to give people a chance to know who they are and, and what their heritage is. So, What goes into creating a video? That's a good question. Um, and, yeah. and we should tell people, we should tell our listeners that um, they can find you, your blog on JewInTheCity.com. They can go on YouTube, search Jew in the City. And there's a range of topics. Give us some examples of some topics you've covered on videos. Well, we've done Shabbos. We've done kosher. We've done mikvah. We've done the hole in the sheet. We've done uh, kosher. Oh, no, we did kosher already. Um, what else have we done? Orthodox so, All-Stars. Orthodox All-Stars. Um, we've done uh, Science and Torah. Um, we did a fun uh, Shaitel makeover video. Um, what else? Uh, those are some of the, the main topics that we've covered. Um you know, the the different parts of it, it's, it's wearing so many hats, really. Um, there's a lot of volunteers that are helping us, but there's so many things that go into, you know, first there's like raising the funds to pay for the next video. And so recently we've been working with some sponsors, so that's good. 
And then the next question is, I just, I really begin by praying. Like, that's really, I begin, I just say, like, please just let the ideas start to filter in. Like, I, all my creativity and any wisdom or anything, I just, I ask Hashem to, you know, put the right ideas into my mind and for the words to come out into the page the right way. So I sort of give myself some time to think about the issue in sort of a, a general way while I'm praying and sort of not trying to think about it too specifically, but sort of letting the creativity filter in. And then um, sometimes, a lot of times actually there's research that goes into it. Let me start learning some of the, you know, the laws, especially like mikvah. That was something I did a lot of research on. The science and Torah one, I did a lot of research on. So as I'm sort of learning more about the topic and sort of letting the creative side of my brain filter stuff in and then, it's sort of hard to say how long it takes because there's never exactly a deadline. You know, none of this stuff has a deadline. It's that's sort of the nature of, you know, running a blog. Like the great thing about running a blog is that I can, you know, post something one day and then backdate it from a couple days earlier if I didn't get to it. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a long process, honestly. Do you you show your script to anybody before you film? Yeah. So I'll pass it around, you know, to, uh, look the science and Torah one. There was a guy in our shul who's both a doctor and a rabbi, so I felt like he was a good person to look at, you know, the two different sides of that one. Um, the mikvah one showed to a bunch of different people. And then, you know, once we're, we're getting, um, what's it called, uh, props and, you know, makeup and accessories and outfits. And um, for the All-Stars video, this was really the first time that, like, we really left the couch. Like, doing the City is very much, like, on the couch for the most part, on my living room couch and as we were starting to like get the different all-stars signed up to do this video, I'm talking to our video guy and he's like, Allison, what's the set going to be? I said, I don't know. He said, you have to really start thinking about like, where are you filming these people? I said, okay, let me start. And that proved to be like a huge undertaking, like filming um, our Supreme Court clerk. We needed a, a courthouse behind her. So I was dealing with, you know, all the red tape and, you know, can we get permission to film in this space in front of a courthouse here? And yeah, how get... did you get to Senator Lieberman? Um, well, so <laughs> I um, I gave him an elevator speech in front of an elevator. Basically, um, I had this idea in the back of my mind that there were some people I wanted to work with. Some different people had been approaching me. The Maccabees said they wanted to work together, and Mendy Pelham, this Hasidic comic, uh, Lubavitch comic, wanted to work with me, and Tamir Goodman, and Dimitri Salida, and. I had in, in my mind that there was some sort of a video that needed to be done to show people that the men aren't all rabbis and the women are allowed to work. And people, I, I get a lot of resistance sometimes um, when I put these ideas out there. No, people don't actually think that about us, but this is how it goes. When people see a beard and a hat, they automatically assume it's a rabbi. And I'll tell you, like my uh, husband comes from a Lubavitch family. He was, wasn't Lubavitch when I met him, but his parents still are. And... When my in-laws come to visit, my neighbor next door sees my father-in-law in the, you know, the long white beard and the black hat on Shabbos and the black coat. And she says, oh, a rabbi's visiting you? I said, no, he's a computer programmer. Um, but um, so it goes like that. They see the hat and the beard and they assume that's a rabbi. And then there's not really an understanding that not all of them have the hat and the beard. And so that's this sort of not quite getting that different professions and I already talked about the women not working thing before. So I wanted to show a video to show that we're, we're really in so many fields and, um, I was at it when I got the award of the aid, uh, the end job dinner when they awarded me as the social media um, influencer. I knew he was going to be um, uh, honored that night, and my plan was to get there during the cocktail hour and sort of, you know, strike up a conversation. I get everywhere late, so I missed the cocktail hour, and I just got into there into the middle of the speeches. And in his speech, he says, "I am going back to D.C. after this." 
And I said to my husband, do you think he means like right after this? He says, I don't know. Let's see if he sits down. And so I watch him walk off the stage. And instead of going to his table, he just starts going towards the door. So I get up from my table and I start running towards my door. And I run into the hall to try to intercept him. And then this other lady intercepts my interception. And she starts talking to him. I'm thinking, lady, come on, finish up here. We got important business to do. And so then he's walking towards the elevator with a Secret Service agent. And I said, Senator Lieberman, do you have a moment? And I pulled out my business card. And I said, hi, my name is Allison Josephs. And I ran a website psychology in the city that breaks on misconceptions about orthodox jews and we make videos and we'd love to see you be in an upcoming one and i hand him the card right in front of the elevator and he says sure anytime call my office wow and i said we did cool. it. we got lieberman and my husband said no you didn't he says that to everyone he's just being polite i said no i charmed him he liked me we got lieberman so i wrote to the office and they wanted a formal proposal and then he said yes so i felt like once once Lieberman was in place, um, it was pretty much, everything else was pretty much, you know, easy to, to, to sign up at that point. You know, when you have a U.S. senator that has agreed sure. to be in one of your sure. projects, um, kind of everybody else wants to be a part of it. So that was really a coup. Um, and, you know, his he wrote in his book, I read his book right before we filmed him, that his day is in like, you know, 15 and 30 minute increments. That's how his whole day is boop, 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 boop. And that's why on Shabbos he doesn't wear a watch because this is one day, one time is his. And we got one of those 30 minute segments. And he let us film him in um, his his press office in Congress, which is this beautifully, you know, appointed room. But to get the equipment into this building, it, if you can think of like handicap accessible, like the most handicap accessible, and then think about the, what the exact opposite of that would be, we were like the little stairs and narrow hallways and, you know, bumping, bumping our uh, equipment through everything. Um, anyway, thank God we got it in. We got it out. We flipped his office around backwards. The way that you see his office actually, that's the back side of it. His desk actually is filmed, is actually in just a corner, in like a boring corner, not much going on. And our video guy saw the room. He said, I want the desk this way. And he told us that we could rearrange the furniture. And when Lieberman walked into the office, he said, you don't like how my furniture's been? Wow. So- <laughs> that could be your claim to fame. I rearranged the furniture in a U.S. senator's office. And I, sa- I sat in his chair also when we were uh, setting up the shot. Um, our video guy needed me in the shot to set it up. And so when Lieberman came in, I said to him, Senator, I, I tried out your chair before you got in here. He said, do you want a career in politics? I can help you get started. I'm, I'm retiring soon. I said, I think I'll stick to Jewish outreach in the meantime. But if I ever change my mind, I'll, uh, I'll be in touch. <laughs> wow. you got a great personality for this job because you just got to get out there and get in front of people. And you do that so well. Um, we just got a couple of minutes left here. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing Orthodox Jews today? Oh, gosh. There's a lot of challenges in the community. <laughs> I mean, our perception is, is one thing. There, there are problems um, that the community needs to deal with internally. You know, there's the abuse, the sexual abuse thing that's going on that not enough people are clued in yet about how to handle it and that needs to be. Unfortunately, there's certain segments of certain parts of the Orthodox world that I feel like uh, it's like this. None of us are perfect. There's no community within Orthodoxy that is living up to every standard of halacha, that's living up to every standard of Torah. But in some cases, the the ways that people are falling short are really egregious and people are getting hurt. And so it, it's painful to see. I, I think, I believe that there, uh, we're mostly good people and there's a lack of understanding in certain, in certain areas. Um, 
a lack of maybe trusting the the larger world, the secular world, and yeah, unfortunately there's you know the cheating that goes on in terms of the government when that's not a Torah value. We're supposed to we're supposed to you know pursue justice and we're supposed to you know kadoshim to you. You know what I'm saying? We're we're supposed to have such a high standard. Um, and I, I think you know the the abuse thing is another major area where if people truly understood um, the pain that these people are going through, and there's so there's such a large number of people that are raised in orthodoxy and leave it because um, they are silently abused and no one helps them. And and these people come to me and they've come to Jew in the city, and this is something that I speak about because I think that we can't just tell people that you're misunderstanding us. We also have to face up to the problems and speak out about them and not just, you know, be quiet. I think enough, there aren't enough people that are willing to stand up and have a strong voice and say, this must stop. This is not who we are. This is not who we can be. We need to have the good people basically beat the bad guys is what it needs to come down to. Um, and, but you know, you clearly live what you preach and preach what you live, you know, both ways. If you could sum up your, feelings about Orthodox Judaism in, in one sentence. What might you say? I don't know if I can set up anything. We've got like, you know, just a couple of minutes here. So how do I sum it up in just a couple of minutes? Bring us back to the rainforest. Bring us back to the rainforest. Um, oh, the end of the show, my mind is getting a little bit blank here now. All right. Um, you know, it's, uh, I was trying to find something that, uh, real that I could pass on to my kids. I saw the way that we were doing Judaism before that, the Judaism of convenience, where a holiday would happen if we could fit it in. And if something, if we had like, you know, a baseball game that day or, you know, a a dance recital, we missed that holiday that year. And I wanted something where the spirituality came first, where that was our first commitment. I, I missed my senior prom because it was on Shabbos. And my friends were like, you did it the week before. You'll do it the week after. Can't you miss one week? And um, what I found in, you know, an Orthodox lifestyle is that consistency that this is, this is what comes first. This is, these are my boundaries. Um, and you don't always get to do everything you want. There are some things you, you give up by making halacha, the boundaries of what you live in. But I feel like I've gotten so much more than I've lost. That's what it comes down to. What I've gained in meaning and spirituality and transcendence and holding on to something in this fleeting life, in this ephemeral world, um, the things that I miss that I have to give up are minuscule and don't compare. Did that work? That was beautiful. And you can catch more of Allison Josephs at jewinthecity.com. You can email me, randy at nachamstiegel.com, if you have any questions or if you want to, Allison to answer any questions. I'm sure that you can do that um, either through me, randy at nachamstiegel.com, or you can go to her blog. You can search her on YouTube. Facebook. Allison, Facebook. Oh, yes, we forgot about Twitter. Facebook. She's big into social media. You can find her. And you guys, you should look for her because her message is amazing. And um, we really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Thanks so much for joining us here. Legendary violinist Itzhak Perlman will bring his soulful sound to Brooklyn with a major performance at the Cushman and Wakefield Theater at Barclays Center on Thursday, February 28th at 7.30 p.m. Perlman will be joined on stage by Brooklyn-based cantor Yitzhak Mayer Helfgott a world-renowned tenor who has led the revival of Jewish liturgical music. Proceeds in the concert will benefit the Met Council on Jewish Poverty and the Perlman Music Program. Purchase tickets at BarclaysCenter.com or by calling 1-800-745-3000. Separate seating options and group tickets are also available by calling 855-GROUP-BK. 
The evening will feature celebrated violinist Yitzhak Perlman and chief cantor of Parky Synagogue, cantor Yitzhak Mayer Helfgott, performing music from their fall 2012 Sony release, Eternal Echoes, Songs and Dances of the Soul. Purchase your tickets, BarclaysCenter.com, or call 1-800-745-3000 for the February 28th event. Separate seating options and group tickets, call 855-GROUP-BK. Let's give them something. 